Luke recorded a fascinating conversation between the disciples and Jesus. And I want to take you to the other book that he wrote, the book of Acts. We're talking about that, and I want to take you there. Dr. Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Action, we could call it, the book of Acts. And in chapter 1, the resurrected Lord is about to ascend to heaven, and the Holy Spirit will descend in a matter of weeks, and the New Testament church will be created. You can only, only imagine the disciples on that mount of olives with their resurrected Lord. You can kind of see the wind tugging at their garments and anxious thoughts also tugging at their hearts. They're certainly wondering what comes next. And the disciples ask this question of Jesus in chapter 1 and verse 6. When they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In other words, in his answer to their question, he first of all told them what not to do. Don't try and set a date for the coming kingdom. And then he told them what to do. Prepare your hearts and your lives for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't try to anticipate the coming of the kingdom, but anticipate instead the coming, empowering, anointing, energizing ministry of the Spirit of God. And if you look further at verse 8, he says here, and this is what I want to focus on, and you shall be my witnesses. Now, did you notice that he did not say to them, when the Spirit comes upon you, you will begin to witness? He doesn't say that. See, Jesus Christ is not dealing with what we do. He's dealing with who we are. I think, frankly, the church is primarily ineffective, not because it isn't doing anything. I mean, the church today is making more noise than ever without so much uh, forward motion. We're busier than ever. In fact, in the last 20, 25 years, there's been more information written on the strategy of the church than in the previous 1,800, 1,900 years. If you were to ask the average church, what does your church do? You would immediately get the answer of strategy and philosophy and mission statements and, 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 and planning manuals. Much of the problem centers around our thinking today, and we, we've forgotten this one important principle. We have forgotten who we are. We have mistaken motion for movement. We have replaced a person with a series of programs. So I find it fascinating that Jesus Christ did not say in verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall develop methods and strategies and purpose statements. Oh, that's all good, and we do that. But he actually said, there's a person coming, and when that person indwells you, you shall be my witnesses. Now, we will have opportunities to witness. Jesus informs us, though, that we are first and foremost witnesses. He's effectively giving us something a whole lot more demanding. So you can't contain this in a Thursday evening program. Uh, you can't put a bumper, a fish a bumper on your, you know, a fish sticker on your bumper and say, am I a witness or what? 
you, you can't put 50 bucks in the plane and say, there, I did my part. You know, that's going to be for all those vocational missionaries out there that we supported. We're all for them. Now, Jesus Christ is telling us all that we have entered a lifelong application. He tells us who we are. The Lord, of course, used similar analogies, didn't he, in the New Testament? He also tells us that we are the salt of the earth, John 5, 13. What does salt do? Well, based on its very essence and its being, it creates thirst, it prevents decay, it, it cleanses, it flavors food just by the nature of its being. I think it's interesting that Jesus never said we are the sugar of the earth, although we could all be a lot sweeter, or some of us, me in particular. And I talked earlier about being a North Carolina native and drinking sweet tea, which you ought to introduce sugar to that element. It's a good idea. I remember making... Um, this will take some of you North Carolinians. I mean, you'll, you, North Carolinians, you'll be right here. I remember making oatmeal one morning when my kids were little, convincing them they'd like it. Now, this is not the pre-made kind of the little packets. Now, this is the real thing with the cardboard jar. You cook it for five minutes, and then you let it set. All right? It's all, yeah, are you with me? Thank you, Jesse. Appreciate that witness there. All right? They didn't want it. I persisted. I said, look, can you just sit down here? Three bowls. So I put a spoonful, you know, in each bowl. And then I said, now look at this. I put a thing of butter on on the top and it just kind of all melted. And they still weren't interested. I said, no, 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 watch this. And I got brown sugar. And I sprinkled brown sugar all over the top. And I added milk, presto. They each ate three bowls. They said, daddy, we can taste the sugar. It's dessert in a bowl, and it's for breakfast, which is really great. But has it ever occurred to you that you've never eaten a good meal and said, that was wonderful, I could taste the salt? Salt is good only insofar as it flavors the food. And, of course, salt is not for collecting, right? It's for sprinkling. We happen to be in this auditorium as a collection of salt, which is fine, but we don't come into contact with the world in here. We gather to sharpen our saltiness, but we, as one author said, we get out of the salt shaker and into the world. Let's go back to this verse here, and you might circle that key word right in the middle of the verse. Verse 8, it's the word witness. It shows up at least 29 times in the book of Action. We're all involved effectively in God's witness expansion program. And let me just point out two ways in which the believer serves as a witness. First, through the way you live. Now, the word witness kind of takes you into the drama of a courtroom setting, the gallery, the jury, the prosecutor, the defendant, defense attorney, um, the judge. Everything, for the most part, in that analogy, that metaphor, centers on the testimony of the witness. That's what matters. Everything revolves around that. Now, let me ask you for just a second to think, in this analogy, who happens to be on trial? Not the believer, Jesus Christ. And the Christian is called to be a witness to the authenticity of Jesus Christ and the gospel, which is effectively on trial. Now, if I can carry this metaphor a little further, the defense attorney would be the Holy Spirit, The prosecutor would be Satan, and the world 
would be the jury, and the world, the jury will decide based on the testimony of the witness as to the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's take the drama a little further. In any courtroom proceeding, one of the primary attempts of the prosecuting attorney is to discredit the testimony of the witness, right? How do you do that? You discredit the testimony of the witness by discrediting the character of the witness. Any good attorney is going to dig into how that witness lives, how that witness talks, how that witness acts outside the courtroom, by the way, because what that witness is outside the courtroom setting has a direct bearing on the effectiveness of their witness inside the courtroom. An effective witness is effective because of the way he lives before he ever takes the stand. Secondly, an effective witness is effective not only because of the way he lives, but because of the words he speaks. By the way, to begin talking to somebody today and you begin by saying, you know, the Bible says, and no longer commands respect or attention. Only a fraction of our culture now believes that the Bible has any authoritative bearing on on life. We're really no longer living in a post-Christian world. We're living in a pre-Christian world. The dean of Asbury Seminary School of World Mission and Evangelism has written that today we have in our generation now several things in common with the early church. And because of that, we really need to learn from the early church. And we need to be aware of the culture they came out of or they were involved in, invested in reaching. He said this. He said, the first thing was this. The early church faced a population with little or no knowledge of the gospel. That's the culture we're living in today. Which means it isn't enough today to slip a track onto someone's windshield or hand it to a waitress and say, there, I did it. Because some basic questions are now on our culture's mind that will need addressing before they have any basis for understanding the simple statement, God so loved the world. Which God, who are we talking about, and what do you mean by love? And who is the world? In fact, why don't you keep that to yourself? Not only did they face a population with little knowledge of the Bible, secondly, society in the first century included the equal validity of many gods and many religions. Now, that would have been unthinkable in the American culture 30 years ago. As little as 30 years ago. I mean, America is all about baseball, or at least tonight is football, apple pie, and God. Well, the first two haven't changed. The last one is no longer a guarantee. Which is why the Democratic National Party you know, tested the waters some time ago, you're probably watching the news, by dropping out any reference to God, as well as Jerusalem serving as the capital of Israel. These, I think they were testing the waters. And the outcry to me was really interesting and revealing. It was revealed primarily through conservative media. They had armed with them, and we saw it if you watched, footage of an obvious battle, an eruption that had begun to take place, the moderator squelched, which would have developed had the moderator called for a legitimate vote. I'll never forget watching the footage. 
as the moderator informed the delegates that they were going to re-include a reference to God and you could hear the booing. Now, by the way, I don't think that's just you know, contingent to that particular national party. That's our culture. But the booing and the outrage, seeing delegates wave their arms in the air and shake their heads. See, today we're watching a definitive change surface. The absence of any desire to acknowledge the existence, much less the presence of the God of the Bible. This is pre-Christian. Not only did the early church, and we today, the dean of the seminary, right, face a population with little knowledge of the Bible, encounter a society which included the equal validity of many gods. Thirdly, the witness of the first century faced a hostile society with the ever-growing potential of persecution. We're facing that today. The church will continue to be marginalized, to be viewed more and more with suspicion, as radical, as unwelcome, as politically incorrect as not good for the best interests of society. Those pastors and believing communities, those churches who are communicating biblical definitions of faith and especially moral behavior will eventually face a hostile culture and eventually a hostile court system that will penalize and suppress them, it'll begin with financial restrictions, penalties, and fines, the loss of exemptions, ultimately charges, ultimately imprisonments, and maybe even death. And the church in this culture will enter into the culture of most of the believers on this planet today. We are the salt of the earth, which means we are eventually like salt in an open, festering, decaying wound, which means we create discomfort and arouse displeasure and we must be silenced. If there was ever a a time then when the church needed to know exactly who she was, and who she was supposed to be and not waste time, it really has to be now. How in the world are we ever going to impact our pre-Christian, 21st century, just like the first century world? Well, don't miss the fact that Jesus Christ effectively implied in his answer that we can't. So you're not to do it on your own. Wait The Holy Spirit will come. I'm going to send my Spirit who will empower you so that you can join in this witness expansion program. Now look at verse 8 again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, that's your own city, and in all Judea, that's reaching out further into your own country, And Samaria, that's a different culture, yet on the same continent. And finally, the remotest parts of the earth. That's every culture of the world. Now, did you notice in his answer that this really isn't a plan? All he did was give a geography lesson, not a ministry strategy. 
He did not tell them how to reach Jerusalem. He simply told them who to be in Jerusalem. He didn't tell them how to reach Judea, Samaria, the uttermost ends of the earth, but who to be there. You see, they would have to answer the question themselves. And in every generation, the question would have to be asked all over again, how are we to be witnesses? Because that changes from culture to culture, from generation to generation. How my parents were witnesses 50 years ago is changing in how I'm a witness. How this church as a community of believers will witness today in this community is going to be different than how the church witnessed 50 years ago, 30 years ago. How are we to be witnesses? How are we then to testify to the saving power of Jesus Christ? To put it into an even clearer question, in what area of Jerusalem are we going to show people who we are and to whom we belong and that we really believe that that one to whom we belong can redeem their lives too? How are we going to do that? Harnack, the German church historian wrote that the early church progressed by means of informal missionaries. It's an interesting thought. In other words, the early church progressed because every member believed they were missionaries. Informal, meaning they were not vocational or supported in doing it, but they were missionaries still. The phrase informal missionaries was actually coined by Justin Martyr a second century church leader, a defender of Christianity in Rome until he was martyred in 165. He said this, he said, the church moved forward in the first century simply because every believer was considered an informal missionary. Now we kind of use the term tent maker. That's our expression. Kind of the same idea. A, a, A tent maker is someone, however, who leaves our culture and moves to China or Africa or Indonesia, gets a job in the marketplace, but intentionally lives not for their job, their job just pays the bills, but for the opportunities their job affords them to be a witness. Listen, are we not all tent makers here? Aren't we? Do we not all have jobs to basically pay the bills but allow us opportunities to be witnesses in our culture for Jesus Christ. And that's the, that's the genius of Jesus' answer to his disciples here. Because God knew that strategies would come and go. Methods would come and go. Tools would come and go. Effective planning would change and, and develop. Which is why Jesus does not outline a plan as much as he identifies a person, the Holy Spirit, and his people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. And we begin here, locally, Jerusalem. Regionally, Judea. Nationally, Samaria. Globally, to the ends of the earth. And I want you to know, by the way, beloved, that uh, we've, we've needed to retool our thinking to effectively reach our own Jerusalem. We want to help you, enable you, equip you to do the work of ministry. And the toughest place to reach is home, isn't it? I mean, where people know you. I mean, that's intimidating, isn't it? Where you grew up 
where you go to school, where you go to work. I mean, that's why it's easy to go to a park in New York City and engage people in gospel conversations, and it's a lot harder to go to a park in Raleigh and do the same thing. Why? Because you'll never see those people in New York again, more than likely. But you go to school with, you live nearby, you might bump into somebody in that hallway at work that you engaged in a conversation in Raleigh. Here's a thought, though, that's caused me a lot of soul-searching over this past year especially. It's this question. Here it is. I've asked myself this a thousand times in recent months. If the ministry of Colonial Baptist Church were to disappear tomorrow, what would suffer as a result? If this campus turned back into a hayfield, which it was for more than 100 years, and if we disappeared along with it, what would suffer loss in our community, in our region, in our nation, in our world? I mean, what would be shorthanded? What would change? What would be adversely affected? Who in this community would miss us? And I don't really like my answers. I don't think many people are going to miss me. I I know you will. You'll deeply miss me, but we're going to disappear together, so never mind that, okay? I mean, but who here is going to miss us? Who needed us? To whom are we demonstrating the gospel in a tangible way? So we're praying and we're strategizing about how to be a witness in Jerusalem. And it's a lot harder and it's going to take a lot of thought and it's going to involve every one of us because we're all tent makers. We're all informal missionaries placed by God's spirit in this community for this time. And our culture is rapidly becoming like the first century culture. And the stakes are high. And and, in many ways, it's kind of like going back to the basics, isn't it? I thought about this illustration, and I'm sure you've heard it, and I'm sorry to repeat such a well-worn story, but you may not have. But during Vince Lombardi's years at Green Bay, the Packers were absolutely humiliated by an opposing team. The Packers did everything wrong. The next day at practice, Coach Lombardi stood before his team And he held up a football in his hand, and he said, gentlemen, we are going to start all over. We're going back to the beginning. We're going to go back to the basics. We're going to go back to to the very definition of the game. And then he said, this object I am holding in my hand is a football. And one of his players said, coach, please, not so fast. Listen, the church has to return to a basic truth, and it's bound up in the answer that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples. According to this passage, you are not a computer technician. You you are not a housewife. You are not a salesman. You are not an executive. You're not an electrician. You're you're not a painter. 
You're not a teacher. That's what you do. What you are is a witness. Called to take the stand in the courtroom of your influence where you teach, fix things, live. And and there you testify for the name and the cause of Jesus Christ. I'm excited to be in this with you. Let's pray. Lord, my heart is warmed by this assembly, provoked indeed unto love and good works. We pray that by the good works we do that our world indeed will see those good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Help us to not be satisfied with the gathering of the salt and the supporting of those who go around the world with the gospel. Give us a a fresh vision that we are informal missionaries to take the stand, to be witnesses for your glory's sake. So would you work in the hearts of our leadership and, and give us a clear path and as a church family that we would retool our vocabulary and our perspective that missions is not about giving money to people to go do something. Missions is who we are. This is who we are. And we begin here. And we'll thank you for what you do in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.